Book Two, Part Three of Plato's Republic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Allman. The Republic by Plato. Translated by Benjamin Jowett. Book Two, Part Three. Where then is justice? And where is injustice? And in what part of the state did they spring up? Probably in the dealings of these citizens with one another. I cannot imagine that they are more likely to be found anywhere else. I dare say that you are right in your suggestion, I said. We had better think the matter out and not shrink from the inquiry. Let us consider, first of all, what will be their way of life, now that we have thus established them. Will they not produce corn, and wine, and clothes, and shoes, and build houses for themselves? And when they are housed, will they work, in summer, commonly, stripped and barefoot, but in winter substantially clothed and shod? They will feed on barley meal and flour of wheat, baking and kneading them, making noble cakes and loaves. These they will serve up on a mat of reeds or clean leaves, themselves reclining the while upon beds strewn with the yew or myrtle. And they and their children will feast, drinking of the wine which they have made, wearing garlands on their heads, and hymning the praise of the gods, in happy converse with one another. And they will take care that their families do not exceed their means, having an eye to poverty or war. But, said Glaucon, interposing, you have not given them a relish to their meal. True, I replied. I had forgotten. Of course they must have a relish, salt and olives and cheese, and they will boil roots and herbs such as country people prepare. For dessert we shall give them figs and peas and beans, and they will roast myrtleberries and acorns at the fire, drinking in moderation. And with such a diet they may be expected to live in peace and health to a good old age, and bequeath a similar life to their children after them. Yes, Socrates, he said, and if you were providing for a city of pigs, how else would you feed the beasts? But what would you have, Glaucon, I replied. Why, he said, you should give them the ordinary conveniences of life. People who are to be comfortable are accustomed to lie on sofas and dine off tables, and they should have sauces and sweets in the modern style. Yes, I said, now I understand. The question which you would have me consider is, not only how a state, but how a luxurious state is created. And possibly there is no harm in this, for in such a state we shall be more likely to see how justice and injustice originate. In my opinion, the true and healthy constitution of the state is the one which I have described. But if you wish to also see a state at fever heat, I have no objection. For I suspect that many will not be satisfied with the simpler way of life. They will be for adding sofas and tables and other furniture, also dainties and perfumes and incense and courtesans and cakes, all these not of one sort only, but in every variety. We must go beyond the necessities of which I was first speaking, such as houses and clothes and shoes. The arts of the painter and the embroiderer will have to be set in motion and gold and ivory and all sorts of material must be procured. True, he said. Then we must enlarge our borders, for the original healthy state is no longer sufficient. Now will the city have to fill and swell with a multitude of callings which are not required by any natural want, such as the whole tribe of hunters and actors, of whom one large class have to do with forms and colors, another will be the votaries of music, poets, and their attendant train of rhapsodists, players, dancers, contractors also makers of diverse kinds of articles, including women's dresses. And we shall want more servants. Will not tutors also be in request, and nurses wet and dry, tire women and barbers, as well as confectioners and cooks, and swineherds too? 
who are not needed and therefore had no place in the former edition of our state, but are needed now? They must not be forgotten, and there will be animals of many other kinds if people eat them. Certainly. And living in this way we shall have much greater need of physicians than before, much greater, and the country which was enough to support the original inhabitants will be too small now, and not enough. Quite true. Then a slice of our neighbor's land will be wanted by us for pasture and tillage, and they will want a slice of ours, if, like ourselves, they exceed the limit of necessity, and give themselves up to the unlimited accumulation of wealth, that, Socrates, will be inevitable. And so we shall go to war, Glaucon, shall we not? Most certainly, he replied. Then without determining as yet whether war does good or harm, thus much we may affirm, that now we have discovered war to be derived from causes which are also the causes of almost all evil in states, private as well as public. Undoubtedly. And our state must once more enlarge, and this time the enlargement will be nothing short of a whole army, which will have to go out and fight with the invaders for all that we have, as well as for things and persons whom we were describing above. Why, he said, are they not capable of defending themselves? No, I said, not if we were right that the principle which was acknowledged by all of us when we were framing the state. The principle, as you will remember, was that one man cannot practice many arts with success. Very true, he said. But is not war an art? Certainly. And an art requiring as much attention as shoemaking? Quite true. And the shoemaker was not allowed by us to be a husbandman, or a weaver, or a builder, in order that we might have our shoes well made. But to him and to every other worker was assigned one work for which he was by nature fitted, and at that he was to continue working all his life long, and at no other. He was not to let opportunity slip, and then he would become a good workman. Now nothing can be more important than that the work of a soldier should be well done. But is war an art so easily acquired that a man may be a warrior who is also a husbandman, or shoemaker, or other artisan? Although no one in the world would be a good dice or draught player who merely took up the game as a recreation, and had not from his earliest years devoted himself to this and nothing else, no tools will make a man a skilled workman, or master of defense, nor be of any use to him who has not learned how to handle them and has never bestowed any attention upon them. How then will he who takes up a shield or other implement of war become a good fighter all in a day, whether with heavy-armed or any other kind of troops? Yes, he said. The tools which would teach men their own use would be beyond price. And the higher the duties of the guardian, I said, the more time and skill and art and application will be needed by him. No doubt, he replied. Will he not also require natural aptitude for his calling? Certainly then it will be our duty to select, if we can, natures which are fitted for the task of guarding the city. It will. And the selection will be no easy matter, I said. But we must be brave and do our best. We must. Is not the noble youth very like a well-bred dog in respect of guarding and watching? What do you mean? I mean that both of them ought to be quick to see, and swift to overtake the enemy when they see him. And strong, too, if, when they have caught him, they have to fight with him. All these qualities, he replied, will certainly be required by them. Well, and your guardian must be brave if he is to fight well. Yes. And is he likely to be brave who has no spirit, whether horse or dog or any other animal? Have you never observed how invincible and unconquerable is spirit, and how in the presence of it makes the soul of any creature to be absolutely fearless and indomitable? I have. Then we now have a clear notion of the bodily qualities which are required in the guardian. True and also of the mental ones. His soul is to be full of spirit? Yes. 
but are not these spirited natures apt to be savage with one another and with everybody else a difficulty by no means easy to overcome he replied whereas i said they ought to be dangerous to their enemies and gentle to their friends if not they will destroy themselves without waiting for their enemies to destroy them true he said what is to be done then i said how shall we find a gentle nature which has also a great spirit for the one is the contradiction of the other true he will not be a good guardian who is wanting either of these two qualities and yet the combination of them appears to be impossible and hence we must infer that to be a good guardian is impossible i am afraid that what you say is true he replied here feeling perplexed i began to think over what had proceeded my friend i said no wonder that we are in a perplexity for we have lost sight of the image which we had before us what do you mean he said i mean to say that there do exist natures gifted with these opposite qualities and where do you find them many animals i replied furnish examples of them our friend the dog is a very good one you know that well-bred dogs are perfectly gentle to their familiars and acquaintances and the reverse to strangers yes i know then there is nothing impossible or out of the order of nature in our finding a guardian who has a similar combination of qualities certainly not would not he who is fitted to be a guardian besides the spirited nature need to have the qualities of a philosopher i do not apprehend your meaning the trait of which i am speaking i replied may be also seen in the dog and is remarkable in the animal what trait why a dog whenever he sees a stranger is angry when an acquaintance he welcomes him although the one has never done him any harm nor the other any good did this never strike you as curious the matter never struck me before but i quite recognize the truth of your remark and surely this instinct of the dog is very charming your dog is a true philosopher why why because he distinguishes the face of a friend and of an enemy only by the criterion of knowing and not knowing and must not an animal be a lover of learning who determines what he likes and dislikes by the test of knowledge and ignorance most assuredly and is not the love of learning the love of wisdom which is philosophy they are the same he replied and may we not say confidently of man also that he who is likely to be gentle to his friends and acquaintances must by nature be a lover of wisdom and knowledge that we may safely affirm then he is to be a really good and noble guardian of the state will require to unite in himself philosophy and spirit and swiftness and strength undoubtedly then we have found the desired natures and now that we have found them how are they to be reared and educated is this not an inquiry which may be expected to throw light on the greater inquiry which is our final end how do justice and injustice grow up in states for we do not want either to omit what is the point or to draw out the argument to an inconvenient length idomentus thought that the inquiry would be of great service to us then i said my dear friend the task must not be given up even if somewhat long certainly not End of Book Two, Part Three. Recording by Jim Allman, Houston, Texas.